Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase, every day. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. The following podcast includes explicit language, not restricted to words beginning with F, S, B, and Q. Hi, I'm Josh Levine, Slate's national editor, and this is Hang Up and Listen for the week of April 18th, 2022. On this week's show, we're going to talk about the thrilling first game of the Celtics-Nets Eastern Conference Playoff Series, the outcome of which will determine the fate of the universe and more. We'll also discuss a bunch of other NBA stuff, including the Timberwolves play-in celebration, Chris Paul's agelessness, and Nets owner Joe Tsai's relationship with the NBA and with China. Plus, the ringer's Ben Lindbergh will be here to help us assess a week of historic pitching feats, including two near-perfect games, ruined by managers, an immaculate inning, and a whole lot of pitches faster than 100 miles per hour. I'm in Washington, D.C., and I'm the author of The Queen and the host of the podcast One Year. Also in D.C., Stefan Fatsis. He is the author of Word Freak, A Few Seconds of Panic, and Wild and Outside. Stefan, is this the point in the show when you tell us about all the heaters that you faced in slow-pitch softball? Uh, I hit a grand slam and had a chance to hit a second grand slam in the same inning. Did not enter the record books with that second granny, alas. Is that, a, is that Fernando Tatis who hit the two uh, I, th- I think it is, right? In yeah. the same inning? Yeah, I think it is. Yeah. <laughs> Disappointing. I did double, though, so I was trying to kill it. Failed. So if you... Do you know what... Uh, F, no, I'm trying to figure out if this is wrong, if this is right. F Tatis almost anagrams into Fatsis. Oh, very good. Two T's, though, yeah. Very close. Fatis. Yeah. Um, (laughs) Joel Anderson is out again and still filling in with a Madison Square Garden's worth of brain space fully available to discuss the non-Knicks franchises alive in the NBA playoffs. It is New Yorker staff writer and theater critic Vincent Gunningham. Hello, Vincent. Thank you so much. Sadly true. Unburdened by my love, now free to pursue any fancy or whim. All right. So anagrams are totally, totally available later in, <laughs> later in the show. <laughs> we'll, we'll be looking for opportunities. Before their first round Eastern Conference playoff series began, the Celtics versus the Nets looked like it could be a classic. Number two seed, Boston. Best team in the league since February, both by record and by advanced stats. While number seven seed Brooklyn, preseason betting favorite to win the NBA title ahead of even the mighty Lakers. So after Sunday's game one in Boston, where are we? Yeah, looks like it's going to be a classic. A game in which Kyrie Irving scored 39 points while extending a middle finger to the Boston crowd ended with the Celtics' Jason Tatum pirouetting into a game-winning layup as time expired. Jalen Brown kicks it out. Smart fakes. Inside, Tatum spins, and he cuts it in. Celtics go up by one. Vincent, this was incredibly fun to watch, and it was extremely competitive. It was so good. And, I mean, 
speaking of the sort of non-Nixness of it all, two franchises that I just couldn't have more to stand for, the Boston Celtics, for obvious reasons, and the Brooklyn Nets, pretenders in this city. Um, but here they were. And I mean, just for a moment, maybe it's like starting in reverse, but that last shot, have you ever seen a a, a game winner like that? I mean, it's we've always got sort of lamented the sort of hero ball, generic, you know, dribble, 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 shot from the wing or from three that ends these games. This almost disjointed possession that ends with a great Marcus Smart pass into the post and then this spin into the layup, I, I honestly, I couldn't compute it. I, I, it was real basketball as the, as the end of a game, which really never happens. And I, it was, that's it a was great thrilling. point. It was, it was like one of those possessions that you would see like when the Spurs were at their best, like against the Heat in right. that finals where it'd be like, this is basketball at its <laughs> finest. And it's like with eight minutes to go in the second quarter, like Parker to Ginobili to Duncan to to whoever. And in this case, all five Celtics touched the ball, Vincent. And I thought um, what Marcus Smart said after the game was super fascinating. He said, I've always been told you have more time than you realize you have. Um, he almost they almost ran out of time. But the fact <laughs> close, yeah. the fact that the um buzzer went off as the ball went through made it a made that's what made it classic that they almost didn't have enough time, but it was just executed so perfectly. Well, and the reason that it was so beautiful, Vincent, is because they didn't call timeout. They made a choice. They they rebounded yeah. the ball with about 10 seconds left. And um <laughs> I, thought, I thought you were gonna say like yeah, when smart, you know, pump fake those guys off the feed and uh, their no, feet I was and like drove in. To he should have. He should have just called timeout right there. The he had reason him in the, he it had him all there. happened is because they chose not to call timeout because the right, Celtics right. head coach Emilio Doka decided not to to let the play run. He very easily could have scripted it, and there was also enough time actually for Jalen Brown to bring the ball up, hold it outside the key, and try to set up a play that would execute with four or three seconds to go. They didn't do that. Brown didn't stop his dribble. The rest of the team didn't clear out. He didn't hoist up a three or a mid-range jumper after a couple of dribbles beyond half court. And then after his lane got closed off, he made that incredible pass to Marcus Smart. Marcus Smart didn't shoot panicky. He faked two nets out of their shorts, and he passed it to a cutter. It was incredible. It was really great, and it, in some ways, sort of, that collaboration, that flow, that everybody touches the ball thing served as a kind of metonym for what the Celtics can be, especially when contrasted with the Nets. Because, of course, the reason why we think the Nets have any chance in this, they have not been great world beaters this season, the reason that we think that they can win this is because of that sort of other archetype, the ISO thing, with uh, Kevin Durant. And Kyrie Irving, who, you know, especially Kyrie, I mean, was in all his glory as that guy uh, in this game, as he has been for weeks now. He's been playing amazingly. I mean, anybody who's like sort of pro Kyrie has been just sort of living, you know, on a cloud recently. Um, But they have to be perfect, you know, and and Kevin Durant wasn't perfect last night. And if he'd played great, I I assume they would have won. So it was really also just like that contrast of styles and um, that this idea of, you know, why this has the potential to be a great series is that contrast in some ways. So. And even and I think, Josh, that even on that last play, it felt like the Nets were sort of, they were confused. They were like, what's going on? They're moving the ball. Nobody's stopping. I mean, Kyrie got 
beat on the pass into Tatum, which Tatum executed that crazy spin to get to the hoop. But before that, if you watch the replay, KD was kind of ball watching. Um, Tatum snuck behind him into the lane to get the pass from Marcus Smart. So I think there was that contrast in styles happening even on the last play. Yeah, I think on the Nets' last possession that ended with, it was a long like miss from, from Durant mm-hmm. from three, right? Yeah. That was just great Celtics defense. Yep. Like, it, it didn't seem like the Nets necessarily did anything wrong. And, you know, Vincent, like what you were saying, um, with the mode that the Nets play in, kind of pejoratively uh, referred to as hero ball, um, when it doesn't work, it looks bad. Um, when it does work, it's like, yeah, obviously Kevin Durant's not going to miss that because he's the greatest shooter of all time. Um, or, you know, the the one thing that Kevin Durant... Um, could do wrong here is if his like shoe is slightly too large, and then the game will, <laughs> then the game goes to overtime instead of instead of being a win. So it's like it it feels foolish. Like it'll feel foolish after game two probably right. to criticize yeah. um, Durant and, and the Nets for playing in that manner. On the other side, yeah, I wanted to double down on the really stupid thing I said before because I hate <laughs> um, live ball timeouts so much. Um, it, it just seems so ridiculous to me that during the middle of gameplay, you can just call timeout. You know what would be even dumber, though, is like if in the circumstance where like Marcus Smart, Smart fakes two guys off his feet and like dribbles in, if you could call timeout there and then after the timeout is over, the referees like us, like like chess pieces on a board have to like put everyone back in the exact same position. So if they, they were, were in before, midair, would they have to be in midair after the You timeout? jump, yeah. That would actually be better though in circumstances where a guy called, because the worst live ball timeout is when you're like trapped in the corner and then you can just like clear the whole board and then like get everyone, um, you know, away from you. That would actually be better in that case to mm-hmm. like force you to, to reckon with the situation that you tried to time out your, your way out of. Um, but I digress. So um, <laughs> <laughs> LeBron's tweet, young Godry is so damn good at basketball, man. Insane skill, exclamation, exclamation. First of all, love to see LeBron and Kyrie be uh, friends and respect each other. Second of all, is Godry a thing? It's not a pun. It's truly nothing. <laughs> um, okay. I, I just wanted to confirm yeah. that. Just wanted to just wanted to make sure I didn't miss anything. No, but, I guess um, it's a reference to the fact that Kyrie is uh, religious and has been uh, observing Ramadan for um, his last several games, and that's been part of his narrative. So it it refers to something, but it it there is no extra resonance in terms of any wordplay or anything like that. Are you a Are you guys able to kind of get lost in the moment with Kyrie because there is no player who's more I mean some some people say is the most skilled player in the history of basketball I mean there is this dissonance with him where just the pure joy of watching him do the thing that he does and it's not just dribbling I mean his ability to shoot from deep in clutch situations is like not narrative bullshit I mean this guy is like he delivers like almost every time and especially he's on when he's on this run right now are you able to appreciate that for what it is and not think about everything (laughs) that brought us to this moment and why brooklyn is the seven scene because i kind of was like i was just like all about Kyrie in that game just like totally immersed and loving it but the way to fuse the those conflicting feelings is to 
to really appreciate what Kyrie does and hope he does lots of it, and then hope that they lose on a last-second layup. I mean, I I can't think of a time <laughs> where I was rooting for a Boston team. Um, but, you know, as J- Jay Kang wrote on Twitter, this is the first series I can remember where the Celtics are the clear moral choice. Um, and that is what this feels like. I mean, the good thing about this series is that someone has to lose. Um, the bad thing about the series is that one of these teams has to win. But the good thing about one of these teams <laughs> winning is that they're probably going to play the Bucks in the next round. That's so right. And I guess that was probably the best outcome. Uh, I also hope that this goes seven games. But I think that the real way to sort of enjoy Kyrie is to have it all, is to like think about how irritating and strange and contradictory he can be and then how he just also has this talent. Like in some ways, the best way is to sort of do what we probably shouldn't do with athletes is like sort of watch his action and sort of psychologize it at the same time. That's like maximal enjoyment is to see this guy who's amazing at something and so amazing that he thinks he knows everything. And therefore, you know, if I were this good at something, would I also be just a crackpot? I don't know. Maybe I don't see why not. Isn't there a dissonance there, Vincent, between this sort of supernatural skill? You want people that are that gifted to be also rational human beings. Right. And I find it sometimes difficult to square his sort of, the general public miserableness with the sheer joyful brilliance that he produces. That is a, that is a, a contradiction. Um, but then when you look around at people who tend to be like really, really otherworldly good at things, I mean, uh, I don't know. Aretha Franklin was no cup of tea. So maybe, you know, <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I, maybe it's like best to think of him as like a, like an opera diva, you know, these people who like refuse to get on planes unless they're at a certain temperature, you know, um, that he's the the owner of a a weird rare trust in there. So his weirdness is protective of his genius or something like that. Well, there's nobody who's more fun to watch on the court and no one who's less fun to listen to off the court. Uh And so (laughs) there was a lot of goodwill that he lost in that long absence um, because it's harder to be mad at him when he's playing just because of the way we're able to compartmentalize as sports fans. Um, And the thing that's so interesting to me is that so much of the perception of him, not all of it, but a good percentage of it has to do um, with the New York vaccine rules. So imagine if these were the Boston Nets. Well, if they were the Boston Nets, he probably wouldn't be playing for them. Imagine if Boston had... um, vaccine rules that New York did and New York had the vaccine rules that Boston did. What would we think about Jalen Brown? And what would we think about Kyrie Irving? Um, you know, but doesn't Jaylen- Kyrie come into this with so much baggage? I mean, not just yeah. that he's quirky, but that he is sort of badly misinformed and spouting nonsense. I mean, can we look back on his earth is flat ramblings and now just write them off as, oh, isn't that sort of funny, quirky, weird, um, because it's all been overtaken by his truly dangerous um, vaccine opinions. Look, I'm, I'm all, while all of that is true, the fact that he um, was missing all of these games put a spotlight on him that hasn't been on other players. On other players like sure. Jalen Brown, who is an incredibly smart guy, who is like at the forefront of um, 
you know, the social justice efforts and the the bubble and, right. and all of that stuff. Um, it was like really dismaying to hear that. And, and Toronto kind of just functions as this bizarre, like in all of sports, like we learned like which Yankees and Oakland A's players are not <laughs> vaccinated. And we've learned that Matisse Thibel of the Sixers and Jalen Brown would not be available if the games were in Toronto. I don't know if Toronto is going to be around in the playoffs for that long, but maybe we can list like hold them over as like a um, a kind of vaccination status truth serum um, for a little bit longer. But like... They're the sports what, world's black light. <laughs> how do we... <laughs> What if, you know, Jalen Brown had said some things that were, like, disturbing and ill-informed in, like, October and was, like, sitting out the whole time? And the Celtics were bad for the first chunk of the season. Like, how would things have gone off the rails for them? They wouldn't have been the two seed, probably. Um, it's it's just a very weird kind of, like, alternate universe wormhole to go through. Um, and, you know, there's, like, the Luka Doncic injury there, there's like all sorts of things that are going to turn the the playoffs, but like that is one um, that I was just thinking about this weekend. Yeah, the counterfactual is only complete though if you think you know Andrew Wiggins, for example, didn't want to get vaccinated. Then whatever you know, San Francisco's rules were what they were, and he did it. So, the, so That's like the question is like, would Jalen Brown have done it if he had to? And I, I mean, again, this is like has totally to do with my ideas about these two guys. I assume that he would have if he had to. Um, some of like, and this is goes to Stefan's point, like Kyrie's unique like cussedness for him to withstand that uh, those months of uncertainty and like being some kind of designated hitter was like seemed to me so uniquely Kyrie but then again we haven't we haven't heard anything about Jalen Brown being like oh we might play the Raptors in the playoffs I better get this uh this uh taken care of um let's listen to um what Kyrie said after the game um and this is in response to uh his middle finger to the crowd I believe after making one of his many uh three-pointers in the game I'm just, where I'm from, you know, I'm used to all these antics and people being close nearby. Um, you know, it's nothing new when I come into this building, what it's going to be like, but it's the same energy they have for me. And I'm going to have the same energy for them. And it's not every fan. I don't want to attack every fan, every Boston fan. But, um, you know, when people start yelling and all this stuff, it's but so much you can take uh, as a competitor. And, um, you know, we're the ones expected to be docile and be humble and take a humble approach. Nah, fuck that's the playoffs. This is what it is. So, Stefan, you're throwing your lot in with uh, Celtics fans. How do you feel about that? <laughs> Unfair <laughs> accusation. Um, I said I wish they could lose. Um, I don't know. I mean, the, the we're NBA really, players. We're really been, putting you in a vice here. I love I've it. I've been taught and conditioned <laughs> to not respond to fans, and they shouldn't respond to fans. I mean, what if you don't know what the fans were saying? I don't know what, what the fans were saying. Um, and there are lines, and of course there are lines. Not to not to say not to say Boston, but Boston. Stephen, yeah, Boston. That, there's that too. Um, but it seems like I don't know what fans said. But Irving clearly has. You know, this is all based on his two years with the Celtics, where he was injured for a bunch of the time. They won one playoff series with him. Um, he did not leave on good terms. 
Um, he did not like acquit himself particularly well while he was there in terms of his relationship with the fans. Um, he told them that he was going to be there for life. He what, did. What, what, what's a nicer <laughs> thing that it, you know, what, what nicer thing could you say? I mean, maybe this is just our lack of trust in Kyrie. A lot of players will just roll with it. Anthony Edwards of the Timberwolves said he likes playing Memphis because they talk so much trash. Even the kids, he's talking about the fans. The kids was the worst ones. Even eight, eight years old, 10 years old. Anthony, go sit down. You suck. It's just fun. Basketball is fun to me. I love it. Um, I don't think we'd ever hear Kyrie Irving saying basketball is fun to me. I love it. But again, we don't know what fans were saying. And it was multiple fingers, by the way. He did that one where he was standing with his back to the baseline and he put both middle fingers behind his head. Yeah, I've never seen that move. It, it yeah. seemed, it <laughs> it seemed like practiced. Yeah, it seemed like a thing he does, but I, I, I don't know. Um, just he was in his ba- he was in his bag on that one. Just just incredible, like the way that he. No, sorry. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. He practices those. You know how they say that when in the. Uh, <laughs> I see him before the game. He practices those. Um, it was just to me. It was just funny because like literally that's the, like a layup for him. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> um, before you know when they won in the play in the in the play in against the Cleveland Cavaliers after the game was the most endearing Kyrie interview ever when he was asked about Ramadan um he he was sort of saying you know I just it's a, it's a privilege for me to show my god-given gift I'm not the only person fasting I have brothers and sisters all around the world fasting with me it was this beautiful uplifting it was the best Kyrie's ever been in public um and it was all about this like light and positivity and god and spirituality and then Shortly after the the snippet that we played, he also said, "It's dark energy. I embrace it." You know, it's just like the two sides of Kyrie. You know, and 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 both are all. What's amazing about him is that both are so available to him at any moment. Whatever you summon up from that guy, it's just right beneath the skin. Um, he's just an interesting guy. You know, I, I I've never seen an athlete like him. Just like in some ways, like this season, it's been interesting to think about him and Russell Westbrook. Together, because Westbrook's the other person that we've been talking about. People in the in the stands, he was very upset about people calling mm-hmm. him Westbrook and all these other things. Um, just these guys who have a very tough veneer, are very tough on the media, um, but are all are all obviously very like moved by a lot of lot of what happens from moment to moment on the basketball court, from on the floor and off the floor in a way that's sort of breaks down those borders and makes them just interesting as personae just a couple of thoughts before we um move on uh to our next nba segment thought number one marcus smart just sort of challenges my inherent hatred for players through draw charges um there's something about him where i feel like i want to give him a pass he's just very likable and that last play kind of personified um his his goodness and the celtics they don't have a roster that's as perfect sort of platonically perfect as the Suns, but there is something uh, about them that that works especially with Tatum just becoming um who he is and like smart is like he's like their Draymond Green and 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 I love Draymond Green too um and then the last point can you imagine Ben Simmons just getting dropped into the series like randomly in game 4 <laughs> like coming from outer space seems like, crazy having, having played like one on zero or whatever. And like, it's totally unclear exactly what he's doing 
it seems like they're seriously considering playing him. Like it does, or am I wrong about that, Vincent? Like it doesn't. He, no, it seems, seems like, like a he's fake story. Yeah, no. He the other day he pointed at a at a uh, a journalist with their camera and was like get this and then like goes and dunks it's like nobody thinks you can't do that ben um and i love ben simmons but he's not whatever um he seems to expect to be coming back it's been said before but it's worth saying again probably the most challenging player to integrate into your lineup in the entire like like even conceptually in like (laughs) if you think of player types in basketball like maybe if you're gonna throw like mugsy bogues on your team like that would be (laughs) that would be a challenge for all that mugsy bogues does um but just this series man it's gonna that's just gonna take it to another level of of strangeness right that's the great thing right this could get narratively and basketball-y even crazier Up next, Timberwolves celebrating, Sixers and Warriors winning with thrilling young players, and Chris Paul, ageless. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase, every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch, subject to credit approval. Terms apply. All right, more NBA. And Stefan, we talked last week about the play-in tournaments, the matchups, and also the concepts. And for us, the fans, and for the league, uh, this couldn't really have gone better. The Pelicans threw in a thrilling battle with the Clippers. But the greatest moment was the Timberwolves victory over the Clips in the, the previous Western Conference game. And there was some jumping on the table, the scorer's table, by mm-hmm. Anthony Edwards and Patrick Beverly, plus a, another several hours of Patrick Beverly doing Patrick Beverly things. Um, so, Stefan, what did you <laughs> feel about that spectacle? It was a moral outrage, Josh, that they were celebrating not even winning anything. They hadn't done anything yet. <laughs> it was fucking great, man. I am always here for players jumping up on the scorer's table and waving their arms, particularly if they take their shirt off first and wave that in the air. Beverly added to that routine by throwing his shirt into the crowd, rewarding a fan, um, which is was a lovely gesture, I thought. Um, that was wonderful. And predictably, you know, the NBA on TNT guys, Chuck and Shaq, were all like dissing the the Timberwolves because they had. I feel won like any, everyone was yet. everyone was playing their role. Like everyone making, was playing their role. Fun, yeah, you know yeah. those guys yeah. making fun of the Timberwolves. The Timberwolves being excited about making the playoffs for that. It was so much fun to watch those guys time. be excited. That's well, what athletes, you know, athletes should be excited 
at every opportunity, they have to be excited because A, they don't get that many, and B, their careers don't last that long. <laughs> Jump up on every table, man. I hope Patrick <laughs> Beverly went home and jumped up on his coffee table and waved his arms. That was great. Vincent, I mean, Adam Silver has talked about one of the big problems in the league is that the best players don't play enough. I feel like, you know, if Patrick Beverly should be held up, he should win some sort of award <laughs> for caring about caring about regular season basketball. I guess this was in some like purgatory liminal state. Have you did you also hear, or I guess this has been the case for the last few years, that play-in game statistics don't exist? They are in the Bermuda Triangle, neither playoff nor regular season. I think in the end, they're just going to have to pin that to playoff, right? It's postseason. It's postseason play. They should make it part or of the playoff. Or is it like tying for first place in the regular season and it's a playoff game? Like a play-in game? Right. I don't, so you're I telling mean, me, I Josh, guess, though, if, like, if, if, if somebody scores 101 points in a play-in game, it's not going to count as beating Wilt's record? They're, they're in like a separate category of like all-time record for play-in game. It's really weird. <laughs> there is something kind of beautiful about it in that like nobody knows what this thing is. And like that's what this conversation is about. It's just like nobody knows how to react or kind of under- understand what we just saw. We should all just right. follow Patrick Beverly's lead in almost all cases. <laughs> Not all, but almost all. Well, it's called a tournament, right? They call it the play-in tournament. And so like he just won a tournament. Hang the banner, baby. Did they cut down yeah, the like, nets? They should have cut down yeah, the nets. That would have exploded basketball. That, if they been, maybe, the trof- maybe the trophy should be a Patrick Beverly uh, authentic Timberwolves jersey. They should just change the NBA logo to Pat Beverly standing <laughs> on the scorer's table waving his arms. <laughs> he, I mean, that's the, the problem with it for me. I, I loved the celebration, partially because I really like these Timberwolves. And, and I... I loved the making fun of it. I, I found that funny too. Um, my only You're a problem, complicated man. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. The, the, the only problem that I found was that it is Patrick Beverly. Like to your point about players who just like go around getting charged, putting other players in danger by like jumping at their ankles, in, just injuring I, Russell Westbrook. Well, I don't. Yeah. It, I just can't stand. <laughs> I'm, I'm not the biggest Westbrook fan right now either, but. Um, I I can't stand Patrick Beverly. So that that mm. it was him, and that it like mm. he's just like a he's what we call extra in everything. So of course he's the guy doing this. He every he hits a three pointer. Bumass it, Clippers. Bumass exactly. Clippers. <laughs> exactly. Everything he does is winning the winning a tournament. And but like, you like you like not liking him though. Like there, there's something about him. Sure. Like we yes. like him being involved in the NBA. He just makes everything more more yeah. interesting. It's it's true. And so that he was a protagonist in this makes all the sense in the world. And I you know, I'm happy they made it too. And they so, beat the Grizzlies in, in game one, and this is like on the, the road. moment the, the moment when uh one uh records a uh playoff uh podcast after game one when we have the opportunity to overreact and, and talk to go about crazy, how, yeah. Uh, John Morant's just, you know, I, I feel like his career is is going down the tubes. You know, he had a good he had a good run there. Um, but except for that dunk where his hands were again above like the square, unbelievable. unbelievable. But but Vincent, so um, it, you know, obviously I mentioned it before, Luka Doncic being out game one. Like like there are these yeah. sort of absences um, that that seem to bode really ill for 
um, for, for teams or there's like, you know, all this talk about how the Sixers are really going to struggle with the Raptors. And now like the Raptors are down like three guys. The Raptors are down three guys after, after getting blown out in in game one. But then there are also these, these moments um, like with Tyrese Maxey, um, the young Sixers guard, just, you know, scoring the 38 or something like that. Jordan Poole, who's been um, so hot down the stretch of the season um, for the Warriors, like looking like a total kind of linchpin to their new um, death lineup with uh, Wiggins and Draymond and Clay and, and Steph. Um, which of those, either of those two guys or, or somebody else, like which of these sort of young players announcing themselves were you the most kind of interested by or excited by? Yeah, well, I mean, Unfortunately, the third name that I would add to the list that has Maxi and Poole on it would would have been Scotty Barnes on the on the uh, uh, on the Raptors. That guy's really good. Um, we also forgot just to have, just lump Anthony Edwards in. Obviously, yeah. like he's ascending yes. onto another plane. Edwards, I I love so much, but um, I will say I was in the Bay um, a couple weeks ago and I got to see uh, the game. It was Draymond's first game back. And it was happened to be on Steph Curry's birthday, and he dropped forty seven points. And still, the great takeaway from that game was Jordan Poole is so good. He's just like so fluid. He has these great dribble moves that actually seem to have something to do with the the play at hand. You know, um, the one thing I, I I didn't always like about the sort of myth of Jamal Crawford was that he would do these dribble moves, but they weren't like getting him to a new spot. It was they were nice, but but Poole is like the sort of evolutionary Crawford in some ways, but he's also just like so good for the Warriors and what they do. I'm really, really, I, I just like have no sense of how good he can be. And that's always so exciting. That's like my favorite moment um, in a, in a basketball career. So I'm really excited about him. There is um, this feeling, at least for me, Stefan, that like the Warriors were the story of the first part of the season. And then that like extended a little bit with clay coming back um, that they were going to kind of be the like burst of energy um, for the NBA that they had been for so many years. And then they just kind of felt, I don't know if we just got kind of tired of it or since they like fell off pretty dramatically with Draymond Hurd and they were just struggling a bit at the end of the season. But with all of these kind of dramatics in the East, it feels like the kind of possibilities in the West for me really revolve around the Warriors peaking and meeting the Suns. Like that seems um, like it would be kind of a, a fascinating and fun series to watch. And also a test for a Suns team that was like bizarrely written off after making the finals and like, you know, oh, obviously, you know, the Lakers at full strength, you know, the Lakers lost to them in the first round, but like, obviously at full strength, they're going to, you know, I, I alluded to it before, but just like kind of watching them toy with the Pelicans, um, there is just no kind of a, a theoretical lineup in terms of player types and abilities that would be superior <laughs> to what they have, unless it's like a, a small ball thing. Vincent, if you're just like totally eschewing traditional positions, but like the Suns have like one of every type of star, <laughs> and then and then guys on the bench too. The the Camerons, as I like to call them, of course Devin Booker, they're all in their own right. Not only sort of 
prototypes of, of player types, but they're all ex- kind of exceptional versions of those things in their own right. I mean, I could see any of them being perennial all-stars. And so it just, um, it's it's a pretty scary thing. And But what's weird about them is that there's no one who, you know, you're used to just being like, who's the best guy? Who's the best guy in the series, you know? And so when you think about them going against some of the other teams with more sort of classic star power, um, although I get, you know, Chris Paul is a, is a bona fide NBA star, but you know. Yeah. He scored 19 in the fourth quarter and was just like playing as he does sometimes like a guy who has just like total mastery of his craft, um, shooting yeah. for deep from deep kind of getting to the basket at will doing the you're too small thing on Jose Alvarado, who is maybe one of the few players in the NBA who is too small for Chris Paul. Um, you know, Stefan, you're always kind of waiting for the other shoe to drop with this guy, like whether he's, you know, going to get poison ivy and be out for like two weeks or mm-hmm. chicken pox or, <laughs> or something or, you know, break his foot. Uh, you know, I certainly do not wish the, these things on him. But, um, you know, the, the thing with the Suns is, them and the Bucks are the two teams, I, I think. And yeah, I think they're the two teams that can win against anybody in the NBA and like their stars play like 32 minutes. <laughs> like, and that is a superpower when you're going through, you know, like what are Durant and Kyrie going to have to do to make it through this round, much less the against the Bucks? I mean, it, it's just kind of crazy to think of, whether it's the Suns or the Bucks, just like making it through this gauntlet and being like well rested, but it's it's plausible. Oh, it's completely plausible because I think we're also going to be distracted a little bit by the fun of like the Grizz against the Wolves, and we're going to neglect the Jazz and the Mavericks because you know Luke is going to miss the first two games, um, it, and the Jazz are just not. I don't seem like a real and it's threat. not fun to watch. <laughs> not very much fun to watch. Um, <laughs> And, you know, I, so I think you're right. I think it's, you know, Warriors, Suns, but maybe the Grizzlies. So that would be the, if the Grizz get by the, I'm sorry, if the, if the Wolves, well, whoever wins the Wolves-Grizzlies series, right, would play the Warriors next. So I'm not sure that's, you know, how much of a guarantee is a Warriors-Suns Western Conference Finals. I don't know. Not a guarantee. Not a guarantee. Um, Vincent, let's talk about the... Joe uh, Sai story that ESPN published uh, by the Fainru brothers, Steve Fainru and Mark Fainru Wada. A, it's like in, really interesting, and to, to their credit, that ESPN published this story given their business relationship with the NBA and China. But this was uh, kind of a reminder of one of the big stories of uh, the NBA from the last couple of years that sort of fades and comes back inevitably, but never goes away. Like, what what were your some of your takeaways from that reporting about the Nets owner? Well, I mean, one of the great characteristics of, as you say, this recurring conversation uh, with, I mean, China in many spheres of uh, global life, American life, um, but certainly in the NBA, um, is actually its silence, the silences around it. There are these great moments where no one is saying what everybody thinks uh is true and sort of comically in this piece every other every couple sentences there was a Joe Sai declined to comment for this 
piece. Daryl Morey declined to comment for this piece. Over and over, there are these, this like, if there's any refrain in this piece, it's who's not speaking, you know? Um, I just thought it was interesting um, because usually the, the, um, the narrative about the NBA in China is that it's sort of, um, the NBA is monolithic in its sort of indebtedness to China or its desire to break into Chinese markets. But we've never been given a sense of, no, there's a person who's a kind of liaison who is in some ways, um, to the extent that China has a, a personified advocate within the, the leadership ranks in uh, the NBA, it is, it's Joe Tsai, which is really interesting because the previous owner of the Nets was Mikhail Prokhorov, who by all indications was, um, I don't know if he was that kind of advocate, but he was certainly an associate, however close, of of Putin. So just interesting that this, um, as I say, you know, this pretender to the uh, to to sort of a New York mantle has all also been a weird kind of perch for America's uh, geopolitical rivals. Uh, or at least representatives of those people um, in the the leadership ranks. It was a weird. It's a weird about the Nets. Also, just to put faces to what we usually just think of as a sort of vague like NBA in China. Now that there's a person that we can kind of see how how that all went down. So that's really that was it's a really interesting story. It's well reported, um, and it's also just it's something that. Is interesting, but then, then what what do you do about it? I mean, there's also this fascinating kind of money as speech thing. Um, and one of the the more interesting things about Psy is all of the money that he's given to kind of American social justice, civil rights causes. Like after George Floyd's murder, he was like very like kind of out front with his giving tens of, of millions of dollars to various causes. Um, and then are around civil rights issues in China, he says, like, you know, you got to understand the Communist Party there, like, you know, control is very important. It's like a kind of growing nation and economy. People just, you know, want to, uh, you know, have their standard of, of living go up. Like, it's not really, it's not really the same. It's not, a, not an issue there. Like, human rights yeah. activists and advocates would certainly argue with that kind of statement. But it's like, not dissimilar from you know how somebody like LeBron James thinks about this this stuff like being right. incredibly like outspoken and giving and a leader on on causes here and then you know when it comes to Daryl Morey tweeting what he did about Hong Kong like saying behind the scenes like how dare he say that like it's ruining <laughs> it's ruining our interests. But that's not a super fair comparison because Joe Tsai understands this culture, lives in this culture, makes his money in this culture, and is deeply intertwined with the with the Chinese government. Whereas LeBron James is a outside observer who has very little real knowledge. About yeah, yeah. I'm China. not. I'm so, not saying. I'm not saying no, it's I like understand. a perfect comparison. But I'm saying it's like right. It doesn't like Joe Tsai and what he's saying and doing is not out of step with the NBA with its like no, not at leadership. All. I mean, he's like kind of like right in line with what. So, so it doesn't actually feel like there's any sort of like complications or hard questions that the NBA feels like it has right, to answer about NBA, this on like, any like, level. Like all these big sports organizations, makes this sort of moral calculus 
Um, the the Fanuar brothers quoted a, a, a source saying, with Psy, it's a cost-benefit analysis. If you're running a country of 1.4 billion people, you have to make a trade-off between everything that's just free and running amok versus bettering people's lives over time. And I guess Psy has made this argument that, you know, living outside of poverty is itself a human right, to quote the story. Um, and these are the calculations that billionaires make um, in dealing with a totalitarian government. Yeah, I mean, it's impossible to say whether he actually believes that or whether right. it's just what he needs to say to operate in China. And what the piece points out is that Sai is a Canadian citizen and is so rich that he doesn't need to do anything. Like, right. like it's it's right. not like if he ceases, if stops doing business in China, then he's like going to be in the poorhouse or would even have to sell the team. So like, this is obviously, everybody here is is making choices. Right. Although, I mean, one of the, the logic of getting that rich is thinking you always need to do something else. So he, in his mind, he might think, you know, I, in order for my business to continue to thrive, I need to, so he might think of himself as being more kind of tightly circumscribed than any of us um, would, uh, or, or tightly constricted, that is, than any of us would would kind of assume him to be. Um, but the, what's interesting about this and what's like sort of laughably short-sighted about it is, you know, we've recently seen what happens when we kind of all kind of tacitly accept people that we know are embedded in different ways. Just thinking off the top of my head, the Met recently fired one of their principal conductors, Valerie Gurdjieff. He can't he can't conduct at the Met anymore because he has for years been an outspoken supporter of Putin. And one thing happens, the war in Ukraine, and that's unsustainable. So I mean, there's a there's a future possibility here, right? Where like let let's say China goes into Taiwan. It seems to me less possible than it seemed a couple months ago, but let's say they do that. Does the NBA suddenly um, say, Joe Tsai, you can't be a an NBA owner anymore based on this as opposed to the other things that you've tacitly agreed with or accepted or whatever? Um, so it's just like one of those things that evaporates the moment history happens, which as we know, it always does. Um, so it's just interesting to see what could or will happen going forward. Up next, the Ringers' Ben Lindbergh on amazing pitching feats in baseball. This week on our bonus segment for Slate Plus members, uh, we're going to talk to Ben Lindbergh of The Ringer and the Effectively Wild podcast. Uh, He's on this week to talk about great feats from pitchers. And in the bonus segment, we're going to talk about more uh, really fascinating baseball stuff from the start of the season, the like weird communicator device that pitchers and catchers are using and the end of pitcher hitting. What does it mean for the future of the sport? To listen to that, you need to be a Slate Plus member and you don't just get uh, bonus segments on this show and Slow Burn and others. You get ad-free shows, you get unlimited reading on the Slate website, and you get the satisfaction of supporting our show. Uh, To sign up, go to slate.com slash hangup plus. Again, that's slate.com slash hangup plus.
Survivor 46 is here, and so is On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast, and we have a twist this season. The winner of Survivor 45, D. Valladares, will be joining us every week. We're going behind the scenes of the biggest moments, the how and the why things happen, and the strategy and analysis you can only get from someone like me, a Survivor winner. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcasts. Baseball is back. The lockout ended with just enough time to play a full regular season. The National League ended its 50-year designated hitter boycott. Catchers are relaying signals to pitchers with a little Dick Tracy gizmo. The Dodgers seem stacked. Albert Pujols is on the Cardinals again. The Cleveland team is now the Guardians. I mention all of this because we're not going to talk about any of it in this segment anyway, maybe in the bonus. Instead, we're going to focus on perfection and other early season pitching phenomena. Joining us now to help do that is our friend Ben Lindbergh. He's the co-host of the podcast Effectively Wild, the co-author of The MVP Machine and The Only Rule Is It Has to Work, and a senior editor at The Ringer, where his most recent story is about the font size of band names on music concert posters. Hey, Ben. Hey. Yeah, probably the wrong podcast to talk about music posters, but happy to talk about baseball, too. Clayton Kershaw of the Dodgers was lifted last week after throwing a perfect seven innings and just 80 pitches. Meanwhile, in Japan, a 20-year-old phenom named Roki Sasaki pitched an actual perfect game, maybe the best game ever. And in his next start, he was lifted after eight more perfect innings. Kershaw was denied the chance to throw just the 24th perfect game in MLB history. People were bummed. I was bummed. But Kershaw didn't seem bummed, and there were reasons for Dodgers manager Dave Roberts to yank him. What did you think, Ben? Yeah, perfect games have always been rare because your opponents would prevent you from completing them. But now they're also rare because your manager might prevent you from completing them. So I guess I would describe my mood as I'm not mad, I'm just disappointed, (laughs) which I understand all of the reasons that these things have happened. And these are two different circumstances with two very different pitchers at very different stages of their careers. But I think the impulse to protect them was the same in both cases, right? That's why they were pulled. This led to kind of a baseball culture war conversation about the use of starting pitchers in general, which has been an ongoing and I think worthwhile conversation about the sport. But I think the debate has kind of become conflated where people are lumping in the pitchers who are being pulled from no hitters and perfect games with the Blake Snell example, for instance, from the 2020 World Series where Blake Snell, the Tampa Bay Rays starting pitcher, was pulled very early on as he was cruising. That was an analytics-based decision that was based on the idea that starting pitchers tend to become less effective as the games go on and as hitters see them more times within those games. This is a little different. These pitchers were not pulled because the fear was that they would be less effective or that their teams would lose the games. They were pulled because of concern about their health. And we can talk about how valid that is. But in both cases, you have some mitigating circumstances where with Sasaki, he's a 20-year-old pitcher. He has had some arm issues in his past and they have protected him and they've been very careful with him and they're being rewarded now from him with a great performance. Whereas Kershaw, he's toward the tail end of his career, potentially. He's 34 years old. He's had a lot of injury issues lately. He didn't throw for most of the winter, and it's early in the season, and it was cold, and he hadn't been built up. So in both cases, these 
these pitchers had pitch counts that in the past you would have run them right out there to try to complete these perfect games. But we're in a new era now, and you could say a more responsible era potentially when it comes to protecting pitchers, but also admittedly a little less fun because it's fun to see guys go for perfect games. Can't throw a perfect game if you're too young. Can't throw a perfect game if you're too old. Can't throw <laughs> one on a boat. Can't throw one in a train. I mean, um, the the things that are being triangulated here are um, history versus um, individual player health versus long term, long term meaning season long success. Because Kershaw missed the postseason last year due to arm troubles. And, and so kind of trying to balance out all of that stuff is an impossibility. And especially, Ben, when any kind of decision you make that's high profile leads to a conversation about this is why nobody likes baseball anymore. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's a lot of weight to be on a manager's shoulders. Yeah. You have the whole baseball dying is debate crop up again. And, you know, it's not just commentators and fans. It's also players from earlier eras, right? So the great Hall of Fame pitcher Fergie Jenkins said, not even if I had a broken arm and had to roll the ball over the plate, am I leaving a perfect game in the seventh? <laughs> Can I just point out that he didn't roll the ball over the plate? Those probably would have been called balls and the perfect game would have ended. You'd think, yeah. But, you know, we don't have robo-zones yet, so you never know. But it's true. I mean, that is kind of the era that is emblematic of an earlier decade in baseball history. And it's hard to say. I mean, Frankie Jenkins, he had five seasons where he threw more than 300 innings pitched. Now, almost no one gets the 200 innings pitched. So you can see how he might feel that way. On the other hand, maybe that is not the healthiest attitude to have <laughs> toward player health. And, you know, then you had Reggie Jackson from sort of the same era saying, this is baseball. Please, people that have never played, get out of its way. And that seems to be a reference to the idea of front office analysts who were kind of dictating these things. Interestingly, in both of these cases, the manager was a former player, right? In the Dodgers case, it's Dave Roberts. He's a former big leaguer, of course. And in the case of the Chipolote Marines, Sasaki's team, their manager is Tadahito Iguchi, who was a former NPB and MLB player. So it's not as if these guys have never been in these sorts of situations, but the role of the manager is very different for today, at least in MLB, where it's more of a middle manager position. They're not unilaterally making decisions like the old field general days. It's part of a collaborative process between the player and the manager and the coaches and the front office. And so often these are organizational dictates that come down. And so it is trying to balance these things. And I think that is really part of baseball's larger problem. I guess any sport's larger problem is that the things that are in the the interests of the teams and the players at times may not be in the fans' best interest. They may not be spectator-friendly. And Kershaw said as much, right? He said, from a fan's perspective, he feels bad that he didn't go out there and try to finish this. And Dave Roberts said sort of the same thing, that he can't manage with his fan cap on. And so everyone understands why everyone was disappointed to see these players pulled from the game. And yet you also have to understand from the player's perspective, from the team's perspective, that it does make a sort of sense. At the risk of like adding one more statistic to the general pile that is, I guess, part of the part of the problem for the, the MLB. Is there another like be, because this is something that's going to be a problem more and more? Is there another marker of one like, you know, 
excellence within one game for a pitcher that we can start to hang this hat on so that we can have something to be happy about that's not the perfect game. <laughs> I mean, I, I'm sure this would appall the, all the sort of old timers that you just mentioned. But like, is there another way we can say like, wow, one game, how good this person was? Yeah, I guess we need some new metric. It's it's tough because often it's based on counting stats to some extent. It's how deep you get to go in the game. So even something like the number of strikeouts in a game, right? Someone going for a 21 strikeouts in a game, which would be great. You'd think that would be easier now because the strikeout rate is so high, but that's balanced out by the fact that pitchers get pulled more easily. And so it's tough. I mean, you do see pitchers who are more effective in any given game, like the Yankees starter, Nestor Cortez, he had an immaculate inning this uh, past start, and he also struck out 12 guys in five innings pitch, but then he was pulled after five innings. The immaculate that, inning being uh, nine pitches, uh, yes, uh, nine strikes, three strikeouts, and you're done. Right. Yeah, exactly, which is impressive. So I guess we could celebrate immaculate innings, maybe, <laughs> and you only need one inning pitch to, to get one of those. But again, he was pulled after five, and there had never been a start like that prior to 2012, I think was the first time that a pitcher had 12 or more strikeouts in a five-inning start and wasn't allowed to go beyond that. And that's just what we're dealing with today, right? Which that's for a variety of reasons that could be based on effectiveness, not just health. But I think the impulse to protect pitcher health is a, a sound one because we're talking about a 20-year-old here with Sasaki. And you think back to earlier eras of baseball history and someone like Dwight Gooden, for instance, who at that age was a phenom for the Mets and was incredible, but really wasn't effective or durable beyond his early 20s. And of course, Gooden had some off the field issues as well. It wasn't just uh, pitching related injuries, but that was a big part of it is that he was worked so hard early in his career and piled up these huge innings counts. And if there's one thing that we think we know about pitcher health is that adding that number of innings to a really young arm can be especially detrimental. There seems to be something that's called an injury nexus where when you're young and you're still developing physically, that can be really harmful to your health long term. And so I get it. It's smart in a certain sense. And yet it's also frustrating because as Kershaw acknowledged, I think we'll never know really whether this helped him in any way. You know, he could easily get hurt down this down the stretch and his next start, he could get hurt. He gets hurt every season at some point at this stage. Of I mean, I, I think the cognitive dissonance here and the thing that makes it hard for anyone to win this argument is that it doesn't seem like pitchers are getting healthier. And it doesn't right, seem exactly. like we're in this moment where like, all right, well, you know, we're, we're going to not be able to see these things that are amazing and make us love this sport and hearken back to like the heroes of yore. But at least like pitchers are healthier. <laughs> I mean, it's just like, <laughs> like it, it just doesn't seem true. But, you know, I, I do want to just step in take a moment here, um, you know, we don't want the like managerial decisions and, and that debate to overshadow um, Sasaki in particular. I mean, yeah. I was like so moved by this that I like, you wrote, wrote about it. A, a story about it. I mean, I wrote a story like how amazing must, must it have been. Um, <laughs> like a perfect game followed by eight more perfect innings, Stefan, is just like not something that seemed plausible in high level baseball before this weekend. No. It is just a crazy feat and a testament to just unbelievable skill, obviously. But like what a what a moment. 
What, what a an thing. incredible moment. I mean, and let's not And it's still going. The streak is the streak is ongoing. The streak is ongoing. He has retired his last 52 batters, 32 of them by strikeout. Um, and I, it might be easy for American fans to say, uh, it's the it's Nippon professional baseball, the Japanese league isn't the majors, but it is the second best league in the world. And what was interesting to me, Ben, also, is that this is a young pitcher in Japan. And I think that our conventional understanding of Japanese pitching is that there hasn't been the same degree of care and concern and focus on pitch counts. Every story you read almost every year about the high school tournament in Japan, there's always some pitcher that throws like 192 pitches in a 13-inning game, and then the manager brings him back the next day to throw another 100 pitches. Um, And in the case of Sasaki, this seems like an exceptional sort of restraint on the part of of the manager that in, in a way that felt different. I don't know if I'm making an unfair cultural assumption about Japanese baseball, but it did seem to me like, wow, pulling him in the eighth inning on the cusp of a second straight perfect game, that took some 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 balls in Japan. Yeah, I think that's fair to say that there's been less scrutiny around pitch counts and and less restrictive limits there. And I was struck by that, too. And, you know, I was uh, because I'm a night owl. I was still awake when he was going for his perfect game on the East Coast, which was like three thirty in the morning. And I was alerted to the fact that that was happening. And I was able to tune in and watch the last inning or two, which was extremely exciting. But you saw the difference in some of the practices just as evidenced by the fact that he was throwing between innings. You know, he was Mm. up on the sidelines uh, before he came in for the ninth, just tossing, keeping his arm warm, which you would never see over here. But clearly there is an, an, an increased focus on him and protecting his health. And a lot of MLB trends do make their way over to NPB. I think NPB teams, you know, they pay attention to what is happening here. And there are players who come from here to there and front office personnel as well. And they've gotten very into analytics and all the same trends that we're seeing in MLB. So it's a little bit of a lower strikeout league in MPP, which makes it all the more impressive that he struck out 13 consecutive batters in that perfect game, which is incredible because the record was nine. So not only did he just edge out the record, he blew it away for additional strikeouts on top of that. So I know a lot of MLB fans are wondering, oh, when will we see him here? And we don't know if or when that could be. It will be probably several years, and that's assuming that he wants to do that. But he'd have to be posted by his team, and there's currently a rule that would really suppress his spending if he came over before he were 25. So I know it's a little bit harder to follow what he's doing while he is in NPB for fans in the U.S., but it is really extraordinary. And the stuff is incredible, too. So it's not as if you could just say, well, it's a different league or it's a slightly lower coward. League, there's no doubt that what he's doing there would play over here as well. I mean, he's throwing a hundred over a hundred mm-hmm. with just a nasty splitter and fork ball. I mean, you watch him and he is just absolutely filthy. <laughs> so it's a lot of fun to watch. And I, I think it does show a bit of a sea change that he has been held back in that same way. And and they're they know what they have in him, and so they're trying to be careful. But did you turn Josh, off the game when yeah. he got pulled? 
This is a scoreless tie. I got to see, yeah. see what happens. I was only watching the Perfecto live. Uh, I was not okay. awake at that hour for the second game. Well, Vincent, but, Vincent, you mentioned, is there another metric? And Josh, you, in your piece, talked about game score, this metric that Bill James created years ago that is really just a raw, pure math addition of... Um, you start with 50 points and add a point or two for every um, pitching accomplishment, strikeout, out, et cetera, et cetera. And prior to um, Sasaki's game, the highest was Kerry Woods' score of 105 in, a, in his 20 strikeout no-hitter in 1998. He walked one guy, and Sasaki's was 106. And you combine that with the 19 strikeouts in the 13th in a row. And arguably, this is like the greatest game that's ever been pitched at a high level of professional baseball. And Ben wasn't even watching it. Um, <laughs> unbelievable. No, ben was watching that one. Oh right! I keep my schedule straight, Josh. Yeah, yeah oh, but sorry. Even even the game score metric. I mean, that you get a point for each out you complete, right? And you get an additional two points for each inning you complete after the fourth. So even that is set up to reward length and durability. But what Josh is saying is is true, I think, because if we could point to this era and say, "Oh, we're so enlightened, and we're depriving ourselves of the instant gratification of the perfect game, and in exchange, we get longer and healthier." careers and we got to watch these games all season long, that would be great, but you can't really point to that and say, look how healthy pitchers are today because injury rates, if anything, seem to be rising. And what it is is that pitchers throw so hard. It's just max effort all the time and they're throwing so hard that arms just aren't built to withstand that. And so really you have to limit their workloads in an attempt to make up for the just strain and the stress that they're subjecting themselves to. And I think if anything, we're maybe just at a wash, you know, we're just kind Kind of like bailing yeah. out the boat yeah. while it's taking on water. And really, like, even though we are restricting these workloads, it's just sort of offsetting the fact that you're having other factors that are making pitchers more likely to get hurt. And I know one guy you potentially wanted to bring up is Hunter Green, the Reds prospect, the probably the best pitching prospect who's come up in MLB this year. And he just in his most recent start set a record by throwing 39 pitches, 100 miles per hour Ooh. or more, which is the most. In That's a another number for you, uh, for you, Vincent. Yeah. 39 pitches above 100. Yeah, this, well, this is the one that seems like engineered to make to for us to see somebody's shoulder fall off in the middle of the game for the <laughs> right. first time in, in, yeah, in MLB history. There's always this wariness with young pitchers where you want to marvel at the radar gun readings and you want to say, wow, look how hard Green is throwing, look how hard Sasaki is throwing. But in the back of your mind, you're thinking, how long can they keep this up? Hunter Green has already had Tommy John surgery, right? His elbow <laughs> already blew out and was repaired. And so you hope the repair will hold for a while. But you throw that hard. I mean, the track record of pitchers who throw that hard just isn't great for staying healthy. And so we know that velocity really helps you pitch better. And so everyone is going out there throwing as hard as they can all the time. And therefore, they can't stay in the game as long and they might get hurt anyway. So we don't even get the best of both worlds. We don't get the best of one world. Yeah. <laughs> You're just kind of trying to fight this holding action to hopefully keep guys on the field as long as you can. So 
there would have to be some other sort of rule change that would perhaps encourage pitchers not to have the pedal to the metal at all times, right? Have to pace themselves in some way like they were expected to in earlier eras when the expectation was that they would pitch the complete game. They had to hold something in reserve. They couldn't just go all out constantly. And right now there's really nothing that is making them hold anything back. All right, we're going to stop there and talk some more baseball with Ben in the bonus segment. If you're not going to listen to the bonus segment, and you should by becoming a Slate Plus member, I'm going to say goodbye to Ben for those people. He is the host of Effectively Wild, the podcast, co-author of The MVP Machine, and The Only Rule Is It Has to Work, and he's a senior editor at The Ringer. Ben, thank you, as always, for coming on the show. My pleasure. Thanks, guys. Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Now it is time for Afterballs, and Stefan, you mentioned game score, and you mentioned uh, Sasaki's best game score ever in his uh, perfect game. Well, as Ray Ratter pointed out in Defector, maybe not the best game score ever. It depends on kind of how you categorize these things, but he uh, brought our attention to a 27-strikeout no-hitter thrown by a guy named Ron Nechai. It was in a Class D minor league game. So this was a while ago. Class D is not a, <laughs> not a thing, thing that's existed. Uh, love Class D, one of the one of the better classes. But the league um, still exists. Well, I don't know if the current structure of Major League Baseball it was in the Appalachian League. Okay. So it was in 1952. And the funny thing about this game, I was looking at the write-up on Wikipedia, 27 strikeout, no hitter. But um, there was a four strikeout ninth inning. It wasn't like a twenty-seven up, twenty-seven up, twenty-seven down game. There were uh, runners that reached base via walk, error, hit batsmen, uh, and passed ball. The passed ball is what led to the four strikeout inning. So, um, as you can imagine, this got a lot of news coverage in 1952. But perhaps because he was not managed by Dave Roberts, Vincent. Our man, Ron Nitschai, developed a sore arm. And that was kind of the the highlight of his career. He did make the majors one in six record, 7.08 ERA and 54 and two-thirds innings. If you want to read more about him, um, great feature writer Pat Jordan did um, a story about um, Nitschai in 1987. So it was like 35 years later, kind of looking back at his life and career. So we'll put a link to that um, in our show notes. And uh, exciting news for all of us, for Hang Up listeners. Vincent, what is your Ron Nechai? My Ron Nechai is just a celebration of the uh, playoff mediocrity of the Minnesota Timberwolves. Um, When 
this year's Timberwolves, led by Anthony Edwards and Carl Anthony Towns, beat uh, the Memphis Grizzlies in game one of their 2-7 playoff matchup. Much was made on TV and elsewhere. This was the Timberwolves' first series opening playoff win since 2004. Now, that 2004 win happens to have been played exactly 18 years ago today, on April 18th, 2004, back when Usher's Yeah! featuring Little John and Ludacris was on the top of the pop charts. Kill Bill Volume 2 had only recently opened in theater, and Kevin Garnett was still a star player for the Timberwolves. That night, Garnett, flanked by teammates like Latrell Sprewell and Sam Cassell, dropped 30 points, 20 rebounds, and 4 assists. But he wasn't Minnesota's leading scorer. That was Sam Cassell, who's now an assistant coach for the Philadelphia 76ers. He had 40 points that night. And they were matched up in that first-round series against the Denver Nuggets and their rookie star, Carmelo Anthony, who scored 19 That 2004 team eventually went to the Western Conference Finals, where they lost to the Los Angeles Lakers, the three-peat champions who that year would go on infamously to be absolutely dismantled by Larry Brown's Detroit Pistons. That year was a pinnacle for the Wolves. Uh, In their 33-year history, they've only managed to reach the playoffs 10 times, and they've only progressed past the first round in seasons when they were led by Kevin Garnett. Uh, The franchise was founded in 1989 by the Tennis and Racquet Club impresarios Harvey Ratner and Marv Wolfenson. They were inaugurated alongside three other shiny new franchises, the Orlando Magic, the Charlotte Hornets, and the Miami Heat. Their state had been abandoned by the Minneapolis Lakers in 1960. Then they briefly hosted two ABA teams, the Muskies and the Pipers. Uh, And here in the newly formed Timberwolves, there was now a new basketball hope. But it took them seven seasons to make the playoffs even for the first time. They were the last of their small expansion class to pull that off. And in the first seven years, they failed to even notch more than 30 wins. But they drafted Garnett in 95. And in the next year, they traded on draft night to acquire my favorite all-time player, the Dynamo Brooklyn point guard, Stefan Marbury. This this was a short-lived duo whose potential still haunts my dreams. On April 24th, 1997, uh, Marbury's rookie year, they played their first playoff game in franchise history. They'd already switched ownership. Now it was owned by the former state senator, Glenn Taylor. And the number one song on the pop charts on that day was Puff Daddy's Can Nobody Hold Me Down. The fifth element was set to premiere at Khan. <laughs> and the Wolves, well, no great shakes there. They lost that game and went on to lose the series in a sweep. Uh, they lost 112 to 95 to the Houston Rockets that night. Uh, they were a hodgepodge of faded veteran stars like Charles Barkley, Hakeem Olajuwon, Clyde Drexler. Marbury scored 28 points in that losing effort. All of his great moments, they tended to come in those losing efforts. Garnett had 21 points and nine rebounds. And this would be the first of seven straight seasons during which that team would make the playoffs and then lose in the first round. But now, hope's back in Minnesota. The current team is up 1-0 on the talented Grizzlies. The number one pop song in the country is something called As It Was by somebody called Harry Styles. And at the movies, I'm told there's both a new Spider-Man and a new Batman. I'm not going to fact check that. Carl Anthony Towns is an offensive whiz. Anthony Edwards is my favorite bombastic Wolves guard since Marbury graced the Minnesota parquet. The Wolves are back, and I hope they're here to stay. That was that was great. You did not mention the connective tissue here, which is Kevin Garnett jumping up on the scorer's table. <laughs> Jumped up on the scorer's table, uh, I saw several memes that had um, 
that had uh, Patrick Beverly giving the Garnett Celtics anything is possible speech. Um, similar, similar in enthusiasm, very different in scenario. It's true. Um, also just a bunch of really snake bitten Kevin Love teams in there yeah. Uh, yeah. That, that never got their, their chance to shine. Um, this is the ones. I love Anthony Edwards so much that I am fine. I'm like, I've never been on board with them since Marbury left. And now I'm like right back. Stefan, when you think of Timberwolves basketball, what comes to mind other than Anthony Peeler? <laughs> <laughs> it's Marbury, but it was the trade. I think it was the draft day trading that that I remember with uh, mm-hmm. who was involved in all those swaps. Who did they actually it, pick? It was Milwaukee. And so there's, a, there's an, another way this goes where it's Ray Allen and Kevin Garnett on the Timberwolves before mm. they eventually mm-hmm. got together on the Celtics. Terrell Brandon criminally underrepresented in that after all. Just years <laughs> of, of quality service to well, the, the person I The person I had a really hard time cutting out was uh, one Tom Gugliotta, who mm. was uh, actually the leading scorer on the Timberwolves that playoff year until he got injured and came back during the postseason. All right, well, here's to many more uh, happy Timberwolves playoff memories to come. Uh, that is our show for today. Our producer is Kevin Bendis. To listen to past shows and subscribe or just reach out, go to slate.com slash hangup and you can email us at hangup at slate.com. And don't forget to subscribe to the show and rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. For Vincent Cunningham and Stefan Fatsis, I'm Josh Levine. Remember Zelmo Beatty and thanks for listening. Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.